hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Hedge funds, private equity, structured products, collectibles. Sounds like investments for the already rich, right? Think again. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 448. And today we're talking with Kellyanne Winget, the first millennial and out LGBTQ plus woman to found a private equity firm. Kelly joins us to share how and why these investments are tools for you too. And us. Kelly's the author of Pitch the Bitch and host of The Wealth Alpha. Kelly's been featured all over from NPR to Forbes. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio, you want to catch this episode. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome back to another episode of the Queer Money Podcast, folks. We keep trying to provide you with new information, new ideas to help grow your investments, to help you strategize your retirement. And today we have a very exciting topic. I don't think many people have covered this on their podcast before. In fact, we're talking about two kind of topics today, alternative investments and private equity. So we have the world-renowned, famous Pitch the Bitch Kellyanne Wingett on the podcast today. Welcome, Kellyanne. Oh, good morning. Happy to be here. <laughs> We're excited to have you. So before we dive into that, I'd like to dive a little bit into your story because one, it's kind of weird with who you are and the world that you're in. It's a very male-dominated world that you that you work in, but your background is very curious too and doesn't necessarily... I don't see the through line from where you started your career to where you are now. So you've managed valet teams, you worked in radiology offices, you've done demolition work, <laughs> yes. think, worked at tanning salons. And probably the most fun thing is you've worked for a bouncy house company, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so how did wow. you get into finance exactly? <laughs> so... I was extremely privileged. I grew up in a very affluent neighborhood household. Both my parents were in financial services. Uh, my father worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for a couple of decades, and my mother was a CPA accountant for several private companies. So, I mean, I, I think it was ultimately I was going to end up here anyways, but it, it really started because I love money and it started really early. So when it was my turn to get a job at 15, because I wanted a really expensive pair of jeans and my parents are like, this is our money. Go figure it out on your own. And so, <laughs> yay, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with the store Buckle, but that was really popular yes. when I was in high school. And so, those really tacky, bedazzled jean things were in, and that's what I wanted. And so, I walked out the back door and I got a job and at a car wash selling car washes. Mm. And the first job was actually a cashier because they didn't want women outside. Like the girl works the cash register because we're uh -huh. bad with money, you know? Right. So <laughs> I started out selling the men from the cash register because I would upsell everyone that came in to pay their ticket. So they would move me outside. And so by the time I was like 16 or 17 years old, I was making $60,000 part-time in high school. Wow. Wow. Selling nice. car washes. <laughs> That's great. <crazy. laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah. And because I 
figured out that I liked money a lot. I had like three or four jobs in high school. And so I worked at Chick-fil-A. I worked at a bounce house party place. I worked at the car wash. I worked at Palm Beach Dan. Basically, wherever I wanted a service for free is where I worked. Um, <laughs> okay. There's a, there's, a, there's a money saving strategy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I had a bright red convertible in high school because I'm cliche. And so I worked at the car wash so that I could always have a shiny car. Uh, I like to eat to get Chick-fil-A. So I had, I had a job at Chick-fil-A and I like to be tan. So I worked in a tanning salon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. When I graduated high school, I, I tried college a couple times and I was always interested in business. I was always interested in economics. But when I got into those classes, I really just thought it was a joke. You know, I was paying all this money to attend these classes and have these books read to me. And I'm like, I'm not actually learning anything and I'm making more money than the, than the people reading me this book. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, I went out in the world and I worked for a radiology company and then eventually a, a demolition company. And that's where I learned a lot of the technical skills that I have, surprisingly. So I was on the operations side of this demolition company and I worked on building out a database that could cost estimate any job just by putting in the type of building you were demoing. And I worked on that project for a really long time to just have the owners basically tell me, recreate this in Excel because the old men don't want to use the, the software. And so yeah. then created the $100,000 a year license software in Excel for the old men to use. And then were, was told, why don't you just use the Excel sheet? Because they don't want to use it either. Okay. And I was like, I'm leaving. So, I was Bye. like, Good, goodbye. <laughs> so I, I took those skills and I got a job with, a, with an oil and gas company. And that was kind of my intro into the private equity space because... They were buying mineral rights and working interest down in the Eagleford Shale. And this was back when oil was starting to creep up to $130 a barrel. And for somebody who's five generations in oil and gas, it just, you know, my spidey senses were like, mm, this isn't normal. <laughs> and so it raised a bunch of red flags. I tried to, you know, let leadership know like, hey, you know, we're overpaying for these assets. It's not going to work out for investors. They were like, no, oil's going to the moon. And I said, I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> and about six months later, oil crashed to $30 a barrel. Oh, wow. And at that time, I had moved to California from Texas and to Newport Beach and started helping other startups and other companies raise capital because I had the affluent background. So I knew how to work with high net worth individuals. So I started consulting startups, medical device companies, real estate, you know, whatever to raise capital. And from about 2014 to 2018, I helped raise about half a billion dollars. And oh, I nice. took that experience and moved back to Texas to get back into kind of the oil and gas space, just because I had had a terrible experience with startups, like in the tech space of just like raising obscene amount of money and just have them like literally light it on fire. And I just couldn't, I couldn't be in that space because I really like to see value for the investors. And that's when I switched from more consulting for the businesses to more consulting with the investors. I've had to walk through the due diligence and find opportunities in the alt space because that's where I've been exclusively since 2013. Nice. Wow. That's a very circuitous, but very informative career path. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know what? One of the things I will say I love about this is that you recognize that no matter what job you had, there were skills that you could pick up and transfer to something else. I think a lot of folks, especially I think queer folks who don't 
have the opportunities to have parents pay for college or can afford to pay for college on their own, they kind of feel stuck. I have this job and I have to be, I have to be a bartender. I have to be a waiter or sir uh, in the service industry. I have to work at a hotel, right? We kind of get stuck in these positions thinking that this is all I can do. But clearly you, you say that there's skills that you learn that are transferable. And I think a lot of folks forget that. Oh yeah. I think that one, I get bored really easily. So, you know, the fact that I have an extremely diversified portfolio in general goes back to the career stuff too. And it was always just learning something new to take into the future. And I think that what helps me relate so well to the retail investor base. So just like your normal everyday millionaire is that I've been in the same spaces as them. And when I eventually got into a position where I was working in large family office and private equity, where they were managing billions of dollars, that when I was in those rooms, that I was the only person able to relate to their clients. So even though these people were writing a million dollar check to a billionaire, the billionaire just literally could not figure out why the investor was upset about something. And I was like, they built a business from nothing. Right. And so even if they have a net worth of 50, $100 million, when they write a check, whether it's 100,000 or a million bucks, that's their blood, sweat, and tears that they built over decades of their life that they've right. signed over to you and trusting you with it. So when you call them and blow them off, like that's it means something to them and not right. a good thing. So gotcha. Wow, that's very interesting. I love it. So this gives us a good foundation for what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into the, the the nitty gritty of private equity and alternative investments, what are some of your unique, like tried and true, like strategies or advice for the LGBTQ community, specifically around investing? Start as early as possible and with as much money as you can uh, as early as possible, because there's a lot of things that like, especially in the financial services space, that they just don't know how to relate to the queer community. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of problems and things that we have to plan for that our heterosexual counterparts don't. And so when we talk about family planning, like our families are very planned. We have to kind of always be ready and prepare to move or go somewhere else or change jobs or situations because it could become dangerous. So there, these are things that we have to think about when we're talking about, you know, how much money are we saving? How much money are we investing? And what kind of future do we want that traditional like money people aren't thinking about for their clients? Right. Definitely. When you say start investing as early as possible, can you give us some some sort of ideas of what that would look like, how somebody can maybe do that, maybe maybe even while they're in college or, or right out of college? The name of the game is really to just try to make as much income as humanly possible as early as you can, because obviously your ability to make income later in life gets more and more difficult. So you have your basic needs. And I think that it's important more now than ever to start focusing more on investing than savings and, and investing in a blended portfolio of both things that are highly liquid so that you can take care of yourself in an emergency, but also with things that are more long-term and sustainable mm -hmm. so that later in life, when you start to adjust, like maybe I want to make a career change, or maybe I want to start working less and start family planning. Like these are things that you can take care of in your more stable long-term portfolio than things that are more liquid in case of an emergency. And it's kind of in a unique situation right now because there's the rates are so high. So sitting on cash, which used to be a terrible idea, isn't so bad right now because it is technically higher than what they say inflation is, even if the reality of inflation is much higher. Right. Yeah. It's very, 
very curious time right now to be an investor. Yes. <laughs> but I feel like it's been that way. If I think about it, it's been like that since the dot-com bust. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going on our third decade. Yeah. <laughs> Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So, all right. So we've talked about on this show, we've talked about trading options, all different kinds of, of stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, self-directed IRAs, all sorts of things. So we're trying to give our audience sort of a broader perspective of what the investment opportunities are out there for them so they can find and build the portfolio that's most appropriate for them and their needs. So can you help set a baseline for what are alternative investments? And can I please call them AI without it confusing everybody? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no longer. I wish. I I yeah. wish. Um, Alternative investments just does not roll off my tongue. Yeah. You just call well, them alts. You can call alts. them alts. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll do alts. Yeah. Well, yeah. back in the day when when we were worked in financial services, AI stood for alternative investments, right? There wasn't artificial intelligence in the public domain like it is today. Right. I'll go with yeah. alts. I'll, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'll keep up to speed with everybody. Well, I mean, you could probably raise a billion dollars with a made up name if you, as long as you have AI in the title. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's wild in the private space, like seeing how much money is being dumped into these AI companies, the same way that you saw in crypto. And I'm like, it's going to end up being the same situation, but, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to each their own alts are really just everything outside of your traditional market. So like no stocks, bonds, or cash, right? Everything else, real estate, precious metals, crypto, private equity, private equity covers venture growth and buyout, you know, type capital. And the people that can invest in alternatives are typically accredited investors, people with a million dollar net worth or high income over 200,000. The only alts that you can get involved in that don't require you know, some sort of qualifications, things like real estate and precious metals, and obviously crypto, you can invest, anybody can invest in crypto. But as far as private equity goes, it's typically for people that have a hundred to $250,000 that they can put into a high risk type opportunity like private equity. I'd say high risk, but there's a lot of things you can do to mitigate a lot of risk in the private equity space. And that's what we focus on. But it does require a lot more like research and due diligence when you're investing in the private space, just because they don't have to have the same transparency as the public markets. So you're relying a lot on the information that the private companies are providing you or what you can find just general market studies. So it is a little bit more hands-on, not necessarily inside of the investment, but definitely when you're investing with a fund. Right. So you said that this is typically individuals who have $100,000, $200,000 or more to invest in something like this. Is this something then you would say to someone who doesn't have that? Which Is this something you would say, if this intrigues you, get on the path to accumulating the kind of money so you can do this? I think that a lot of folks, they look back at early investors in some of the big names today, you know, early mm -hmm. investors in Uber, early investors in Facebook, early investors in all these different companies. And, and these people literally are now billionaires because of maybe one or two investments. And a lot of people feel excluded from this group because, but you're kind of pointing out here, there might be a reason why they're 
everyday people are excluded from these, but we don't have to stay there. Right. And a, a lot of this is the SEC's, you know, perceived version of protection for investors. And they've kind of, they're trying to make it more accessible, which is important. There are ways that individual investors who are not accredited can get into the venture space and you can angel invest in like companies that you know personally. So if you just want to expand your network into the venture capital space, you can write those angel checks that are five or 10 or $25,000. It just know that it's a very high possibility that that just goes to the wind and that there isn't actually a return at the end of the road. It's just because there's a lot of risk when we're talking about startups uh, and private equity just requires a lot of capital to do what they do. And that's why the minimums are so high. You want to focus as you grow out your portfolio to have that base in your retirement, which is in your traditional retirement plans or your traditional financial planning. And then you focus on how can I accumulate fifty dollars to $100,000 to put into something that's more high risk like private equity. Yeah. So David probably touched on it, but what is the appeal of alts and and private equity for people that they can't necessarily get from, you know, the the regular stock market? You're going to just have higher returns. So where the stock market has traditionally done about 10% the last probably 15 years, and obviously that's went down last year and still trying to make its way back up. Right. The problem is that you kind of had these devastating events for people and what's really dangerous is that you had people who were in their early parts of their career deal with 2008. And then now they're, this is 15 years later and they're older coming into retirement. And now everything they've built has just dropped 30%. They don't have time to like make that back up after they already lost half their net worth 15 years ago. And they like just got back up to where they were maybe, and then have that drop another 30%. So these people had no diversification. And so their entire portfolio is exposed to that particular risk in the public markets. So diversification is like at the base, our strategy, as long as we're diverse enough, drastic things like that won't happen. And that's really what we focus on because there's there's just, there's a higher return and it hedges any type of potential loss. Traditional private equity, you're looking at like a five to seven X return in under 10 years. And real estate doesn't really compare to that. Venture, if you're really good at venture, you can see those 100x returns, but it does take a significant amount of time. You just have to be really careful about how you structure your portfolio. And one of the things that we really like to focus on is being tax advantaged in some way, Mm -hmm. because you can add an additional 15 to 30% return on top of what you do if you're tax advantaged in some way. Right. So we do have a good percentage of our listeners who have several hundred thousand dollars or more and are about 10 to 15 years away from retirement. It it sounds like from what I'm hearing from you is is maybe those are the types of people who thinking about alts and private equity might make sense to help diversify them more so that they don't run into 15 years from now or 10 years from now, oh, there's another pandemic or whatever the hell is going on in this crazy world (laughs) at that time. But it diversifies and reduces that risk for them. Yeah. I mean, also what people don't realize is that they have these kind of abandoned retirement accounts when they move jobs. They don't know what to do with them. They just sit places. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, about half of our clients we work with are moving funds from old 401ks into self-directed IRAs and invested them in alternatives. Mm -hmm. And that's just because it's like money that they're not really thinking about or know what to do with. And they've accumulated a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars over the first part of their career. They've made a career change, and now they have a new retirement account at whatever job they're at now. And so they take those old funds, and then they 
they invest that into alts, which is kind of a cool thing because they would never really think about using cash. A lot of people are very, you know, like afraid to move their money, but that's kind of like this, this money that's supposed to be invested and was invested, but now is like not doing anything. And so that's what they use a lot of that cash for is investing in the alt space. That's a pretty brilliant strategy. We both used to work for financial services and I remember helping people try to transfer their 401ks over. And it was so bewildering to me how many people forgot that they had money yes. at all these other companies. Like you have sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that's a pretty great, great strategy. Like you forgot you had this money. You need to have it invested. You got to get it out of the, where, it's, where it is. Why don't you go mm-hmm. put it into some ultra private equity and, and diversify outside from what your current 401k is? Yeah. So I know that you know this is this is not a show where we actually tr- give true financial advice, right? Because we need to look at it, every one situation individually. But in general, would you say what would be a good percentage of a portfolio? And let's just say, for example, somebody has five hundred thousand dollars or more. Obviously, if we're talking about somebody who only has a hundred thousand dollars in the folks, I don't want to say only a hundred thousand is in judgment, but <laughs> it's just a reality. Sometimes that's where you where you're at. If you have that five hundred thousand to a million dollars in your portfolio for retirement, what kind of percentages would you say would you'd be looking at toward putting towards something like private equity or or alternative investments? So if you look at like the large endowments and institutional space, they did a huge flip in the last probably 30 years from being very heavy stock bond portfolios to very heavy alternatives. Like I think if you go and look at the Yale endowment, it's somewhere around 90% is invested in alternatives. Wow. I don't think an individual should have 90% of their (laughs) portfolio (laughs) in in alternatives, uh, unless you're me and I'm crazy, but, but it's my job to be an alt. So it's a little different. I think that people who are closer to retirement should be more conservative, probably around 10% of their portfolio in alternatives. And I don't include real estate in that. So I don't think that people should be hundred percent in real estate either, but I don't, as far as your alt allocation. I don't really consider real estate as part of that because it's it's just a whole different animal. I'm talking about like private equity or venture or, you know, some other weird alternative investment should be 10%. But if you're younger and you have, you know, the income streams, then, you know, you could be a little bit more risky and 25% of your portfolio could be in it. I don't think that people should do more than that just because unless you really know what you're doing or you want to commit to knowing because if you have a 25% allocation to alternatives and it's doing three to five X returns, then it's a pretty nice hedge, you know, when the rest of your portfolio is like chugging along at 8%. Yeah. So if somebody's sold on that, they're, they're, they hear this and they think, okay, I want to put anywhere from 10 to 25% of my portfolio into private equity or all spending upon my current income and age and uh, years out to retirement. How do they do that? It depends. So if you have a service, like if you're in the private wealth, if you have a private wealth team with your bank or if you're at your brokerage or wherever, then they have access to alternatives. But most of these are in the private space. You really have to like go and find them, which is the most annoying part. One thing that I like to do is to educate investors on where to find these things. They have to do a lot of their own advertisements. So there are alternative conferences. There are you know these webinars. You can find these people talking about their opportunities. The one thing that I saw that was missing in the alternative space was kind of like a mutual fund of alternatives. And so, you know, the way that we structure our funds is a diversified fund for an investor to take a $100,000 investment that would have to go into one specific company before 
can actually take that same $100,000 invested in through our funds and have exposure to like 25 different companies all in the alt space. And so, and this isn't necessarily fund of funds. We're directly invested in real estate, oil and gas, venture, private equity, you know, debt vehicles, things like that. But you get all of that same exposure through one investment. And so it just, it just takes time. I've spent my entire career doing this and that's why I have an offering built that way. Nice. nice. So you, you're actually helping folks diversify their alt investments, which is is a good thing because like you said, you don't want to, very few people can afford to throw down a hundred or $200,000 and put it into one company mm-hmm. and hope and pray that it gets a 10 X return. Right. And, and exactly. as, as you said, I, I love that you said this idea about being in, in the uh, Silicon Valley space and just watching these people burn through this money. And it's, it, it, I, I would say as an investor, if you knew that that was what was going on, you'd be very scared. If you have a billion dollars and you're burning through a hundred thousand, it's not a big deal. If you right. have five hundred thousand dollars and you're burning through a hundred thousand, you're like, please stop. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I love that. What do alternative investments where do they fit into a retirement strategy when you're in retirement? Or is that when you need to start unwinding your your alts because they're too risky? Not necessarily. Like there are ways to get involved in alts in retirement when you're generating, you know, kind of your baseline income. You can also go through the tax stuff, right? You're still paying taxes in retirement unless you've done some really creative Roth conversions, but which are my favorite thing to work on. But I would probably focus more on like debt opportunities or tangible type alternatives. You can you can buy into things like oil and gas that aren't necessarily drilling risky, that they already have proven production, then you're just buying income. There's a lot of those opportunities in the alt space that people that are in retirement can get involved in. Oh, gotcha. So you can kind of migrate towards more conservative alts, but still stay in alts and get the benefit of in that, in that on that end of the spectrum, the income. Yes. That's interesting. Hmm. Some food for thought, Mr. Alton Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's what you want to focus on because as like your your cost of living increases, like how do you combat that when you're not making income anymore? You either have to figure right. out how to make more income or grow your portfolio in some way. And you just can't do that through traditional investing when you're not making any more income. So you have to buy things that are going to produce that for you. And there's ways to do that. And I talk about oil and gas all the time. Everybody hates oil, but it's it's, nece- it's a necessary evil as we make transition into a different energy future. But what people realize is that it has to be invested in. The reason why we can't make the transition is because oil is expensive. It only really makes sense to transition when oil's at $130 a barrel is like makes what makes wind and solar like reasonable. But if we can make oil trade at $30, $40 a barrel again, then you have this massive explosion of growth and infrastructure projects because it's cheap to build all of that stuff when energy prices are low. Mm -hmm. And then you can build the infrastructure to support renewable future instead of fossil fuels. So you kind of have to do both at the same time. And it doesn't hurt that oil produces a pretty nice return too. Right. Yeah. Oil and gas is very, very complicated. I wish our politicians would have a more authentic conversation around it. I, yeah. I agree. And and I think that many of us forget that gasoline 
that we put into our vehicles is a very small portion of what is pumped out of the ground, right? If you if you have a cell phone, if you have a computer, if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this podcast, you're using a product that has some sort of oil product in it, right? It's mm-hmm. plastics and all sorts of chemicals that come out of them. Not that I'm saying that any of them are great, but we have a dependency on these these devices today, and we have to pull resources out of the ground to be able to make those. One of the things I also do like that you talked about was this idea of buying income, because for a person in retirement, if you are needing to withdraw money out of your retirement accounts to live off of whether that's coming out of a Roth and is tax-free or it's coming out of a traditional account and it's taxed, either way, you need some sort of income to live off of, especially if, and we probably will be at the point where your social security will not cover your full living expenses. It's really important for those of us, and we do know that a lot of you reach out to us and say, I'm in my 50s, I'm in my 60s, I haven't saved for retirement, what can I do? Buying income is one of the things that you can do to help secure your future a little bit or a lot. And so I like you point out, here's an alternative way to buy this income instead of buying a dividend producing stock or by putting all your money in a bond or putting it into CDs or something like that, that pulls out income. This is a different type that gives people exposure to something that they may not be exposed to now and balances out their risk. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about, yeah, I mean, preach, David. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, we have to people have to be realistic with themselves and know that inflation is not four percent, and and the goal to try to get it back down to two percent is absolutely insane. And the the biggest problem with this is that we just keep buying stuff even though the price is going up because we have to, and which doesn't help bring inflation down, right? And they're like, oh, we'll just make money more expensive, and like. They're still going to buy it. You have an entire section, a large section of the you know community population that is is used to ten percent in interest rates because that's what they've been given because they're bad borrowers, right? Yeah. So they're used to high rates. So the fact that everybody else is now having to pay it, they're like, oh well, you know, I guess I have to pay this rate now when the bottom half of the economy has lived in high interest their entire lives, either through credit cards, their car interest rates are twelve percent. You know, like this high, high rate world. Now the middle class and upper middle class is like, you know, what's going on here? (laughs) I still have to buy this stuff. So I guess I'll just use my credit card now or I'll, okay, well, I guess I'll buy a car at 10%. You know, I don't think that the the Fed really has a grasp on what reality is and uh, for normal people. And so we have to, we have to figure that out for ourselves. And so finding things that can beat an eight, nine percent inflation rate is going to be pretty hard, but it is possible. Definitely. I appreciate that you, you you say that, especially for as we age, a lot of a lot of models say, okay, when you get older, you're going to spend 75% or 80% of what you're spending today, but your health insurance is going to cost you three quarters of your social security check. And, you know, just there are, I I think the number of expenses probably reduces, but the costs of some of those expenses skyrockets dramatically. And so we do need to have a decent return to be able to cover those unless we all want to be in that situation that Rose got herself into on golden girls, wondering if she was going to end up being the bag lady that she saw on the street. Right. So yeah. and then she had to become a consumer reporter <laughs> in her 60s. <laughs> well, we're living we're living longer, right? So, right. 
you know, you're all of these things were built on the assumption that you'd be dead by 70. And the reality is, is that, you know, there's like 75 year olds playing pickleball on the weekend. Like these people are not dying anytime soon. And they, they are not living on their social security money. They have built a completely separate portfolio that, you know, the social security is there, but ultimately they pass away and then hand it off to their wives who spend yeah. it anyways. So, yeah. <laughs> And maintaining a golf cart isn't cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's only going to get more expensive. <laughs> so I want to throw that question out to you. We do get that question quite a bit. I'm 50 or I'm 60. I haven't saved anything for retirement. I want to retire yesterday. What can I do? How would you, uh, you answer that question? You can't retire. I'm sorry. Like That's the reality of the situation is that if you did not save or plan for retirement and you were 60 years old and you have no money, like there's, there's not a lot that you're going to be able to do or keep working. And you're going to have to either take a lot more risk and realize that because as far as the really kind of safe, conservative investment options, starting that late is going to be really difficult to catch up. You're going to have to like drastically change your lifestyle Mm -hmm. and, and live, you know, pretty frugally until you can retire. Yeah. And you have a very, you're a part of the queer community and you have a very unique perspective in finance and, and the queer community, I think, because of your job. What suggestions do you have to get the idea of retirement planning started, the, the discussion started much earlier in your life for the queer community than it seems to happen generally? Well, it's nice to have podcasts like Queer Money around because, <laughs> you know, I don't think that even when I was younger, that was something that was really talked about. You know, we kind of have, this extravagant perceived lifestyle of the queer community we party and stuff. And, you know, a lot of our social parts of our lives are surrounded by bars and drinking and eating out. And so those bars are kind of like eating out. That sounds like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I know. So we, but we keep this in mind, but we are also like a majority of, of our community are double income, no kids, you know? So we have a lot more spending power anyways. And I think that for a good reason, there's been more focus on the queer community from the financial space as far as like banks sponsoring our pride events and trying to at least acknowledge that they have queer clients. There is work. I know that, you know, I have several contacts at Wells Fargo that are really focused on, you know, supporting queer businesses. I think that once we create a space to like openly talk about money in a like together as a community, instead of like parceled out just based on our profession, like, oh, I work in this industry. So these are the type of industries, I, events I go to. And so this is the type of financial advice I'm getting because I'm being spoken to as this professional instead of I'm being spoken to as a queer person. Mm-hmm. I think that if we can find the space or create the space that we talk about finance as queer people, instead of whatever our respective industries are, will be a lot more helpful as far as planning. Nice. I like that. All right. We're going to take that home with us and ruminate on it. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. like queer money could like maybe host something like in person for queer people to go to and talk about money. <laughs> it's that's something that has been on the, not the back burner. I would say it's been on the, the middle side burner Okay, <laughs> for a while. We've been ruminating on that for quite a while. We did do a queer money live tour in 2019. We were hoping to have that be something every year, but then 2020 happened and that screwed up everything and we haven't really gotten back into that. <laughs> so maybe we need to do that sooner rather than later somehow. People are craving the in-person thing. It's it's a cool thing to be a part of. At least the women have kind of gotten back to in-person. And so, you know, I've been a part of several 
women's summits and things. That's the other part. Women get one day instead of like a four-day conference, like most things. So we have yeah. summits and they're a day. <laughs> so something something that's a little bit longer and more tangible and you know has some actual like value add. You take something home with you as far as information. I'm thinking of like a career money extravaganza. That's like a seven yes. day cruise <laughs> yes. across the Mediterranean. Oh, do not get me started on conferences on a cruise. This is an obsession that I've had since last year. Um, so there's, there's good a or bad, a, no, it's a good, it's a good one. So there's a colleague of mine, Ashley Brundage is actually, she's, she leads the voyage of empowerment. She wrote a book called empowering your differences. And it talks about how you can be a better leader by leaning into your differences whether that's your gender identity, your sexual identity, your gender, age, whatever. And she did this voyage of empowerment. It's actually happening next month out of New York this year. But last year it went out of Florida and we spent five nights on a cruise working on DEI stuff. And I was like, I'm obsessed with this conference on a cruise thing. So now I've been like shopping cruise ships (laughs) because I'm like so obsessed with this like concept of being not for, that was a really long trip. I don't think that I would do that long on a, on a cruise for a conference, but like maybe three nights, but having your entire group on a boat, like where you have the option to interact in either a social way or professional way, but like your whole audience is there, like completely captivated, right? Yeah. By the content that you're putting on. I think it's just really cool. So that's what I've been obsessed with yeah. for about a year. <laughs> All right. Nice. David so is it's not very, a crazy. David isn't very attracted to cruises. So maybe I have to talk with you after the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's different when it's on like a yacht. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there we go. I like maybe. it. Maybe. I like it. So do you mind telling us a little bit about what is Pitch the Bitch? So Pitch the Bitch, Grab Your Financial Future by the Bags is a book that I wrote last year, actually just came out in May, and I'm not very good at promoting it, but it's it's not necessarily what you should be investing in, but like changing the mindset around money and specifically for women or just people that have been kind of excluded from the conversation because money was never off the topic, like off the table topic in my household. So I'm very comfortable, like very openly talking about money, which isn't the case for most people. And so, and it's on purpose. So like all the media and all the pop culture, like this reference of like, you're not good with money. You don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be investing, blah, blah, blah. And so the book really dives into, you know, why the wealth gap exists, how to acknowledge it when it's happening to you, like when you're being gaslit by your financial provider and and how to start making these decisions for yourself, for your money, because no one cares about it except for you at the end of the day, like you are the only person who can care about your wealth and, you know, just how to figure out when is the right time to start working with a financial advisor. I'm not a financial advisor. I run funds. And so I'm very biased that you invest in the things that I'm doing, you know, but there, I do work very closely with really great financial advisors. We're an investor in Elevest, which is a platform built for women by women. And so, you know, there starts at a robo advisor and eventually you work your way up to a private wealth advisor and they, and they understand your journey as either a queer person or as a woman, which is really cool and unique. But the book really just talks about like getting out of your head so that you can start making these decisions with like a clear mind and not feeling crazy anymore about money. Yeah. I love that. There is so much with money that's in your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that really stifles people from doing what they should do and uh, and what they can do, unfortunately. Yes. I, I also appreciate that that 
you talked about this idea of starting with a Robar advisor because for, for many people, that's exactly where they need to start, right? I just need to send away the $50 a week or $50 a month or $25, whatever it is. I send it away and I'm not, I don't have the capacity right now to think about how to invest. So I'm going to let the professional do it or the robot do it and let all that happen until it gets to a point where it, I can start making decisions and I have the mental capacity or the time in my schedule to be able to start doing that or paying somebody to do it for me. Yeah. I think that what people don't realize is that until you're in a private client, private wealth situation, your advisor is really not doing much more than what a robot can and AI, as far as like building out a traditional portfolio is really good at like, here's your A, B, and C plan based on your risk tolerance. And these are the things that you're going to invest in. And so it's a low cost way to like start building that. And eventually you'll need to move into someone that's a little bit more hands-on, whether that's an independent advisor or you're moving into a private wealth. And you don't necessarily have to have an obscene amount of money to be a private client, but it is enough that, you know, you're you're beyond investing, you know, 10 or $20,000. Like now you've got a hundred or $200,000 that's moving around. You should probably start talking to a, an actual human being who is able to get creative outside of, you know, the traditional products that your Edward Jones advisor is going to be able to advise you on. Cause you should have, you should have life insurance and you should have, you know, some basic investments things, but somebody who can go beyond that. Not a lot of people have the access or knowledge to advise on alternatives or other types of strategies, but it is getting better uh, once you get into the private wall scene that they have a little bit more flexibility and independence to build out a custom portfolio. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's end on some fun here. Okay. When we had Jason Tardig on the podcast, we talked about the sexy topic of CDs and CD ladders, <laughs> and we wanted to find out what they what they were comparable to in the reality TV space, since that's where he's from. So he said CD, CDs were the big brother of reality TV for the investing world. So <laughs> since it's Halloween next week, we're thinking about candy. And actually, mm-hmm. it was just Pride here two weeks ago, and there, we, we just had to give a whole bunch of candy away to the kids down the street because we couldn't eat all the Pride candy. So we're, we're, we're buried in candy right now. If alternative investments were a candy, what candy would they be? And so, for example, David said, mutual funds are like Werther's originals because <laughs> your grandmother, Russ, everybody, <laughs> your grandmother always has Werther's in her purse, right? Even your yes. grandmother has a mutual fund, at, probably at Vanguard, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> individual stocks were like a gumball machine because sometimes you get what you want, sometimes you don't, and sometimes it just takes your quarter. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I don't, maybe I'm dating myself. Maybe it's a dollar these days. I don't know what a gumball costs. So where would alternative investments lie in the in the candy spectrum? I'm going to say a hundred grand just because it's a candy that no one ever thinks about, but it's all yeah. really good. Yeah. And it's like caramelly and nougaty and chocolatey and crunchy. And like, it's got all of like the umami that candy needs, yeah. but it's also like on a really weird part of the shelf and maybe not always there. Some gas stations have them, some don't. <laughs> and, and sometimes, sometimes they're really fresh and sometimes they're not because they've been there for 10 years. But I would say like a hundred grand for sure would be the, be the candy. All right. I like it. I think you. Good. I can tell you really put some thought into this. Of all the questions yes. we sent you in advance, this yes. is probably the one that you had to think about. <laughs> oh yeah. Most, right. Oh yeah. Yes. 
I was like, what is it? I was like, hundred grand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like it. it. That's a good one. I, I, you know, you're right. You don't think about a hundred grand a lot. And then every, every now and then you do have one. You're like, why don't I, why isn't this on par with Snickers exactly? Why don't I yes. think about it nearly as much as Snickers or yeah. even Milky Way? Yeah. It's almost <laughs> like a Snickers and a Crunch Bar got together and had a baby. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason why like I remember is because I used to eat them all the time when I was younger and then I forgot about them, right? As most people did. And uh, then my mother, I think, bought me one for, I have no idea why, a couple of years ago. And I was like, I forgot how much I like these candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I do like it. All right. Well, hopefully we see some hundred grands this Halloween season. And every time, probably not <laughs> every time we do, I'll think about you and alternative investments. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. So where can our, how can our audiences connect with you on social media? And if they want to learn more about alternative investments and maybe even invest in some mm-hmm. alternative investments, how can they connect with you to do some business? So on all my social medias, it's Kellyanne Winget, and that's on TikTok, Instagram, then. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you want to be like more on the information side, I do a bunch of silly like private equity videos on TikTok. So if you're into that, you can always follow me there. I did find my wife there. So that's always a fun thing. But you found um, your way on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We would not be good interviewers if we didn't tap into this. Please, we may remove this from the conversation, <laughs> folks. But <laughs> no. if you're willing to share, yeah, um, could you um, please elaborate? <laughs> sure, you can actually read about it in the New York Times. But we found each other on TikTok in the middle of the pandemic, and yeah, it was love at first TikTok. I guess <laughs> she commented on one of my videos about Mexican candy shots, and because I had a very different TikTok three years ago than I do today. But <laughs> if you don't know what a Mexican candy shot, it's like tequila, watermelon, pucker, and hot sauce. It's like a spicy, sour candy. Ooh, it's really good. Like and, it. <laughs> yeah. It's, and so she was like, I have no idea what that is. And she ended up actually just living down the street from me. And so we, we connected over the summer and then we're inseparable ever since. And we just got married in June. Congratulations. Oh, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, and I, now I forget. How can audiences connect with you? <laughs> Social media is Kellyanne Winget. If you want to learn more about Alternative Wealth Partners, which is the private equity company that I run, it is alternativewealthpartners.com. If you want to check out my book and more about like what I do in the DEI space and in the queer community and in money in general, it's kellyannewinget.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for reaching out and coming on the show. We appreciate having yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Kelly, for a great interview and for sharing such great information on investing in alts and private equity. To your listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us for another episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Queer Money newsletter in your podcast player or YouTube description below to get this week's Queer Money takeaway, how to connect with Kelly, and your tip to reach financial independence faster. Then join us this Thursday when we share the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in the state of Louisiana. And next Tuesday, when we continue our theme of talking about financial independence and retiring early. Thanks again and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. 
Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.